things to another level. Uh, just a reminder, for the month of February and March, we are encouraging people to educate themselves about the Nelson Community Food Cupboard and drop off. The, the, our first few weeks were a little slow, but uh, we think we've managed to do a bit better promotion. I brought in a can of soup. I thought it might be the only one, but then we have a wave come in. If you bring uh, stuff here on Sunday, we'll make sure it gets down to the community food center. And this is a time of year, uh, February and March, where they tend to run really low on donations uh, for a number of different reasons. And so this is a really, really uh, direct, immediate way that we can support those in the community who um, need these services, who need to be able to come in and without judgment, without evaluation, without filling out an application, which can be very demeaning and shaming, they can just take what they need. And some people come in and they grab a few cans of soup. Some people rely on this for their family to get them through a very difficult season in their life, a transition between jobs. Uh, so the need is great. Often the people who volunteer, at, or sorry, who use the services end up volunteering there. And so if you go down and connect with some of the people there at the United Church basement Monday through Thursday, uh, you'll hear some great stories and really encourage you. But this is a great community resource that we want you to be aware of, and we really want you to support. Also an update on Lynn Stevenson. Um, she's doing pretty well, certainly in recovery mode right now, from Col still in Kelowna. And in my conversations with Nathan, they're kind of taking it day by day just to make sure that she is strong enough to be able to transition back here. They're not sure if she's going to be able to transition back here to her home or whether they're going to transition her back here to a hospital and keep her there for about a week to 10 days. So that's kind of touch and go right now. When she, when she is returned, she's going to be returned by ambulance, which means her van is going to be there, which Nathan can drive. So if there's anyone who knows anybody, it doesn't have to be someone here, but if you know someone who's going down to Kelowna and back sometime this week that Nathan could get a ride with and then drive the van back, uh, please let me know, and that would be a help to him. And also for where, when Lynn comes back, I'm going to be sending out, I'll have Amy send out a link tomorrow for a meal train, because that's going to be one of the... Uh, biggest helps that we can provide Lynn when she comes back, especially if she transitions back home. Nathan's there, he, he's, uh, her son, and he lives beside her as a neighbor. But if we can be kind of beginning to store up meals, and so uh, we don't have to wait until she's home. You can start preparing those meals, freezing them now, so that when she is home, we can kind of stack her freezer and just keep meals uh, coming at a pace that uh, allows her to not have to worry about any of that process. Because Lynn is fiercely independent, if you know her, but this is going to be a season of recovery where she's going to have to rely on people to care for her, to show up, to help clean her home, take her dog for a walk. So there's going to be lots of opportunities for us to love on her and serve her in the coming uh, weeks, and we'll keep you updated via email about those. Okay, let's continue in our series on Ephesians, kind of a sub-series looking at spirit-filled relationships, and this morning, moving into a sub-sub-series on spirit-filled marriages. I'm going to read Ephesians 5, 15 to 6, 9, just so that we have a larger um, chunk of Scripture to frame the context and to understand how to move through these passages. Um, beginning in verse 15, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. And therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Sorry, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So I want to begin to hone in on verses 22 and 31 this morning, and I'll continue that over the next few weeks, focusing on the marriage relationship. But I want to review very quickly how do we approach this text hermeneutically, which means the process of understanding how to interpret a text. We want to make sure we're at least moving through three questions. What does the text say? What does the text mean? How should the text be applied? And for question two, that's where a lot of our work has to come in. We want to understand the context, the context of this verse or this passage within the larger part of the book, within the larger part of the, uh, the covenant of Scripture that we're looking at, whether it's the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, within the larger story of God. Um, also making sure that we understand the cultural context of who's writing this letter, to whom, um, what language is being used and does that have any connection to other things that are happening at that time which might allow us to say oh you know just reading this I might think this but now that I realize pieces a b and c hmm, that nuances a little bit how I understand it and therefore how I apply it so we want to do some work on the context and you ideally want to do this with every passage that you read but when my mom was here, she was silent on the ride home in the van, and she was like, oh, Jeff, the problem is, like, I just don't know all this stuff. So it's intimidating. And she was like, I almost feel like I shouldn't read the Bible at all, <laughs> because what if I misinterpret it? And I say, well, that's a good hesitation to not be quick to just read it. Oh, I get it. This is how we should live it out. There should be a fundamental humil humility, but don't let the call for context kind of 
cut the legs out from under your desire to learn about the scripture. Because there's lots of scriptures that we can apply fruitfully even if we don't understand all the context. The more you understand the Jewish context to Jesus saying, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, that will be an increasingly rich call to your life. But even if all you hear is Jesus saying the most important thing you can focus on in your life is love God and love your neighbors yourself, you don't have to move move forward anxious and fearful that you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what if I screw up? I'm trying to love God and I'm trying to love people. That's okay. The Spirit will guide you. But what we really want to do is make sure that we're doing our homework with passages that to us look like they could be very easily manipulated and twisted to serve an agenda that isn't about God and his kingdom, that isn't about loving God and loving other people. And obviously when you get to a passage where um, wives are being called to submit to husbands or slaves are being called to obey their masters or even children are being called to obey their parents, um, there, there can be, and there has been within the church, within particular context, there has been all, there have been all kinds of ways through which those verses have been used as proof texts that have allowed someone else to exercise a dominating, abusive power over other people. And so we want to make sure that we're treating, we're correctly handling the word of truth so that we're applying it in a way that is faithful and not just in a way that at first brush seems right to us in our own eyes. And so we talked about the household code, code within the first century context. That's very important. Uh, wives, children, and slaves were the three classes of people that stood underneath the uh, paterfamilia, the father of the family, which might have been, which isn't, wasn't necessarily um, the father of the immediate family. It could have been the grandfather. It's the oldest male relative who still lives within that household. And the household codes were really important because so much of your life was lived in and through the household, right? There wasn't like, we have a home, and then I have a workplace, and then I go to church over here. All of that, most of the time, was done in and through the home. And so when uh, the Spirit through Paul is addressing household, household codes, he's really addressing what does it mean to love Jesus in the relationships that we spend the most time in? And for us, that would be our marriages and certainly our family and friends and work. So this is application to everybody. But in this culture, we understood that the default setting for anybody hearing this passage was, yeah, wives are called to submit to the husband, children to the father, slaves to the master. Husband, father, master are usually all the same person. And that person has, in a sense, almost unchecked authority. There were some instances where a master could get in trouble if you killed a slave, but even that was like, it had to be um, really egregious, and the master, and, or the, the charge had to be laid against the master that, um, that, that the slave really was, was deserving maybe of a beating, but not death. That was hard to prove in a court because men and masters ha- held so much power. So within this context, uh, wives, children, and slaves, they're not hearing anything new in one sense. Th- they've been used to their whole life that the father of the family tells them how they are supposed to act and then the state, Rome, baptizes that authority as it were and says, yep, man's ahead of the household. Everyone is subservient to him. But this passage does something very different. It directly addresses 
wives and children and slaves who wouldn't have been addressed directly in that context. The man of the household would have been told how he can talk to these people. And they're told, in one sense, to see their station in life as an opportunity to glorify God. But then there's lots of instruction given to the husband and to the parent and to the master that didn't exist in this context. There's a, a new level of accountability. And at its heart, there's this real challenge to the power over status quo that men in households would have enjoyed in the first century context. There's obligations that the man of the house now has to everybody, not under his control or under his power. The metaphor begins to change. It's now under your care, now under your responsibility to love and to lead in the way that Jesus does his church. And again, these verses are challenging to everybody. Everybody is being addressed. And people would have understood that to mean, what, you're saying we're all on equal footing? Yes. Before God, you're all equally redeemed, equally in Christ, equally Christians. There's no um, stratification within the kingdom of God. And so therefore, all of you need to rethink how you can glorify God where you are. So everybody is being asked to recognize their power, reflect on how they're using it, and allow the gospel and Jesus' life and example to rewrite the script that they've inherited either from a Gentile culture or a Jewish culture. Both are um, presumed to be, in a sense, problematic for the Spirit of God through Paul. So the emphasis on this entire passage is on developing new creation relationships, relationships that bear evidence that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God's gracious, loving uh, power has come to rest and reign on this household, this marriage, this master-slave, or we might say employer-employee relationship, this relationship between parent and child, between friendships, between family members, and again, I, go, I start this passage back where I do because the foundation for all these instructions is don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I'm going to say this every week because I don't think you can hear it enough, and I want to make sure that people do hear it if they uh, miss a week. And that is within the context of this passage, within the context of the book of Ephesians, within the context of the new covenant in the New Testament, and within the broader context of the scripture, taking cultural factors into play, we might have a lot of questions about the particularities of what this means and what this looks like and um, the shape that it's supposed to take as with marriages and parent relationships in the 21st century. But I want to make sure... We can, we can all be on the same page about this. Any attempt to use these passages to justify dominating other people, abusing other people, mistreating other people, exploiting other people can just be categorically rejected. There would have been a very straightforward way um, had, had it been God's will, which I know is an insane thought experiment, but had it been God's will to encourage that mode of being, this passage would have been really short, and paraphrasing it would have been, 
you know the instructions that you've kind of had your whole life. Man's top of the power hierarchy. Everyone is under his submission. Total mindless obedience and complete subjugation. Yeah, that's what God wants. So, okay, now move on. But that is not what this passage pushes us towards. And so, taking some of these texts, and especially ones that were used to justify slavery, justify domination and exploitation or abuse of spouses, and particularly women, or even in some cases, child abuse, in the face of children who weren't completely obedient or compliant, those have to be categorically rejected because they don't honor the momentum of the text that certainly begins in the book of Ephesians and moves all the way through. This is who God is. This is what he's done for us. He's given us a spirit, called us into a new kind of life that changes how we, in it, how we move through every relationship. And now Jesus in the gospel is our lens through which we love and serve other people. Therefore, husbands, you can abuse your wives under these conditions. It d- doesn't act, it d- there's no flow there. And it doesn't make sense within the larger framework. So however we, we are to understand these texts, they have to be understood through the momentum of love God and love and serve these core relationships in your life. Bring God's love and truth and grace to bear in your family and marriages and workplaces. Now I want to acknowledge that they are, there are li- likely many people in the room, maybe more than we uh, dare to even imagine, who have been in relationships, maybe it's a friendship relationship, a dating relationship, marriage, relationship, siblings, a vertical one with parents, a workplace situation. You've been in a relationship that is abusive and cruel, that is demeaning, that has been very wounding. Obviously, the earlier that it happens in life, the more wounding and shaping it will be for successive decades of your life. And I'm also aware that I may be speaking to people or hearing my voice over the podcast who may be in a relationship like that right now. And I want you to hear this very, very clearly, that this passage is not a leverage point through which an abusive spouse or an abusive or harsh or cruel parent or an exploitive or demeaning boss can justify their actions simply because of their status, because I said so, because I'm in charge, because I'm your mom, because I'm the head of the household. Whatever language is used to prop up abuse and power in a sinful way. This passage explicitly spends more time challenging the person who has more power in that context precisely because there is no justification for a Christian in any relationship to leverage their power over and against and dominate someone else in the name of Jesus or in the name of this one particular Bible verse that I kind of like because I can extract it from the scripture and set it into my own framework for how to understand what a real marriage looks like or what um, Christian parenting means and trademark that. All authority figures in the kingdom of God, whether that authority is very meager, whether it's very, very much, there is never a justification to use power and position to mistreat those under their care. And there's never a justification on the part of those who are being mistreated 
to just kind of, you know, sort of acquiesce and say, well, I guess we shouldn't really confront because maybe it's not that big a deal. Maybe I'm minimizing things. Maybe I deserve it. That person's not all bad. Like, they do some good things, trying to justify it or rationalize it away or denying that it's there. If you, I want you to know that if you are in need of help, if you are in a situation that is genuinely abusive, where you're being mistreated by someone, I want to encourage you very strongly and help you to understand it is your image of God, biblical duty to confront that. Maybe you don't have the strength to confront that directly in your life, but you can do it by reaching out for help so that someone else can stand with you and support you in confronting evil. Because no Christian ought to just simply receive evil from someone as if that's just their lot in life or as if somehow that glorifies God to simply just absorb these abusive actions or words there's no that's not what God wants for your life I, I, don't, I don't know how to say it any more clearly and so it is a courageous act it is a godly act it is a God honoring act to confront mistreatment and abuse in relationships and to stand up for yourself and to say to someone, this is not okay that we are treating me. And again, you might not have the strength to do that yourself to that person at this stage of uh, where you're at in terms of the relationship. But please know that there are people who want to help you. You can reach out to me, reach out to a trusted friend. But please, please ask for help because God is the God who rescues and redeems those who are enslaved to the pharaohs, who are really the archetype in Scripture of the person who says, I'm a God unto myself. Everyone else is beneath me. I'm on a different plane of value. Therefore, I get to mistreat this person, whether they're my employee, my kid, my spouse, my friend. And God always sides on the side of the abused and the broken. And so please reach out for help if you do find yourself in a situation like that. Okay, let's go back to these questions. How am I using my power and authority? How am I washing the feet of others and expecting them to wash mine? This is how I ended last week's message. And then, what scripts have I not allowed Jesus' love and example to challenge and to edit? I've just kind of unconsciously thought, well, yeah, this is the way you kind of parent. This is the way you do the marriage thing. This is the way you do work. And I haven't actually thought about, is it? And there might be good things that I'm tracking with in terms of they align to God's kingdom, but maybe there's stuff that I've just inherited, a script that I've inherited that aren't, isn't actually helping me um, and certainly not bringing glory to God and it's not helping me flourish in my calling to love and serve my neighbor. How, what does the scripture say about how I should allow the gospel to challenge how I'm entering into these spheres of responsibility? And so these three questions, how am I using my power? Am I washing other people's feet? How does the gospel change these relationships? These are important questions that you have to be asking, and you especially have to be asking them, I would argue, almost continually within the context of marriage. doesn't matter what stage of married life you find yourself in. These are questions that really will... Your, your willingness to ask these questions and your willingness to enter into them honestly and vulnerably and to act on them will in large part determine whether or not the shape of your marriage is increasingly cruciform and Christ-like and God-honoring and a source of blessing 
or it's sort of Christian in name only, um, but from the inside, it's sort of the same uh, game that unkingdomized relationships usually play, which is people vying for power. And as Daryl Johnson said, unkingdomized people for unkingdomized people, that is the name of all relationship games, is power over, how do I get an advantage, how do I assert my authority over other people. But to those who are increasingly surrendering their lives and marriages to Jesus, that will give way to a posture of how can I serve, how do I love. And if I do have authority in this relationship, the authority that I have is the authority to learn what it means to love my spouse in a way that they can receive, not in the way that I think they should receive. Or I'm going to love them on my terms, not their terms. Now, all of these questions, I think, are kind of flow naturally out of the clarion call in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that, that command is given to the entire, entire church in Ephesus. Hasn't been broken down into marriages and parent-child relationships. That's to everybody. In all your relationships, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in some Bibles... I'm not sure what the NIV does with this one, the new NIV. Uh, in some Bibles, verse 21 is attached to the preceding paragraph, and it's disconnected from verse 22. And there's a heading in between that'll be like rules for Christian households or instructions for Christian households. I don't know how many people have a, um, a non-NIV Bible, but uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like in your Bible, it'll, it'll stop at verse 21, then there'll be a heading, and then wives submit to your husbands is the start of the next paragraph, right? I understand why translators do that, because you're trying to help the reader understand, hey, we're moving into a new train of thought. The problem is that's not actually a new train of thought. It's not like Paul had said, hey, in verse 21, we're bringing all this stuff to an end, and now I'm going to talk about marriage, as if they're disconnected. And the reason why, at least in this instance, I understand, but it's not a wise idea for any translator to insert a subject heading there is that in verse 22, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, in the original language, there is no word submit there. It's just wives to your husbands. Because Paul is building on the principle of verse 21. It's assumed, so the translators put it in there because it is grammatically a reference to submission in verse 21. But what is the verb submission? Who is the verb submission in 21 directed towards? Everybody. So we have to understand verses 22 and following, again, in the grammatical context of the preceding verses. You can't just kind of pause and kind of do, oh, salah. Okay, new thought. It's not a new thought. It's building. Paul is saying, hey, church, submit to one another. doesn't matter your social standing, the nature of your relationships. Philippians 2, everyone should adopt the attitude of Christ Jesus, who could have made much of himself, but he came to be a servant. Do that in all of your relationships with each other. And then he says, wives to your husbands. And if you just start in verse 22 with a modern translation, you could be tempted to think that, well, it's only wives who have to submit. But again, grammatically and contextually, what we all want to understand is 
Paul is highlighting that wives are to submit, but not as a standalone, this only applies to wives in relationships. And in fact, one interesting reading that I think is plausible, I, I, I hadn't heard it before researching this, is that um, because grammatically verse 22 is connected to verse 21, and Paul says, submit to one another, wives to your husbands, the reason why he does that is because there is a linkage to ennobling and saying, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, what does that look like? And he's holding up wives in that context as the example, as sort of the model for everybody, wives to their husbands. And he addresses wives, but it's in the context of saying, this is one of the major ways that we need to understand what it means to submit to one another. So verse 22 is not a localized command to um, submit that only applies to wives in relationships. The verb has been inserted there to connect it to the broader calling to all believers to submit to one another. And this is important because whenever I do premarital counseling, the thing that I really hammer and try and push down and through people entering into marriage is not verses 22 and following, it's verse 21. If you want to have a Christian marriage, you're going to have to be continually as a husband and wife, and we'll talk about the particular forms that, that might take. You know, should, should we talk as if men are the head of the household, or should we talk as if women and men are completely equal all the time? We'll get to that next week. I'll talk about some of the frequently asked questions about that next level down of what does this look like when we're moving through discussions or a posture towards one another. The dominating framing metaphor is a Christian marriage is going to be one that's heavily informed by learning to submit to one another. And there is a call to submission. Hippotasomenoi is the Greek word. Hippo, from which we get hypo, under. Tasso, which is to stand. Right? It's to stand under. So when you put those words together, it means to be, it does mean essentially what it means, what, what it reads in the English, to be subject to, to come under the authority of, to be arranged under something in terms of an ordered hierarchy. And again, but that isn't for wives only. That verb in verse 21 is to all Christians. Every Christian in the church submit to each other. It's not submit to your pastor. It's pastor submit to you. You submit to your pastor, friend to friend, spouse to spouse, uh, child to child, you know, sibling to sibling. And all these matrices of relationships you are learning what it means to come under the authority and to be subject to the other person. Now again, that can be really confusing for us because our culture has almost no frame of reference for how you could be subject to someone in a way that would be positive because we value autonomy so much. So equality and making sure we're both equal and we're both having equal access to power, we get that. What is harder for us to wrap our head around is what that would even look like. But I think, again, earlier in Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit, um, I think that context helps us to understand Paul is talking about what does it look like to come under the influence of something negative, coming under the influence of drunkenness, versus coming under the influence of the Spirit. And then coming under the influence, now, you, you could make the argument that's a softer interpretation of hypotasomenoi, but I think it's a good place to start for a cultural context. What Paul is saying, 
can we, you know, I might say, could we at least agree that within the church, within your marriages, within your relationships with one another, regardless of the power imbalance or the structure, is everyone in the relationship who's a Christian committed to coming under the influence of the other person? Because Paul says, if you're going into any relationship in your life as a Christian and basically saying, I'm in the right, I know how things work, I'll talk with this person, but I'm kind of going through the motions because I've made up my mind. I'm not allowing myself to be influenced by them. I'll listen to them, and while I'm not speaking, I'll just be formulating um, the deconstruction of their arguments so that I can tell them why they're wrong. That is, that is exactly the opposite direction of what it means to be hypotasomenoi. Hypotasomenoi means to say, I might think this is, really, this is really important to me. I might think I'm in the right, but I'm going to come under your influence. And I've done this with my kids. I've gone to Lauren, to Kara, to Braden, to Avery, and said, hey, have I done anything to hurt you? Or, you know, I'm sorry about this, or I'm thinking about this. What do you think? I'm not abdicating responsibility in that moment. I'm coming under their influence. I'm saying, you have a perspective that's different than mine. I'm not asking you to be the parent. But what I am saying is, I'm willing to be influenced by you. And in spirit-filled relationships, one of the marks is that both people have an eagerness and a tenderness to allow the other person to influence them. Now, Paul specifically connects hypotasomenoi uh, to wives because I think for him, and, the, and, the, and we'll, again, we'll, um, we'll talk a little bit, we'll be able to flesh this out a little bit more next week, but he sees in the marriage union for wives in that context, a particular opportunity for Christian wives to reflect um, towards their husbands the kind of submission they aspire to direct towards Christ. But again, it's important for us to think through and understand Paul isn't using the language of submission as an admission of inferiority um, or simply mindless obedience. It's not a threat. We, We take the word submit as a threat, but Paul is saying in light of the gospel, the ability to come under someone else's influence is an opportunity to glorify God and to tangibly wash the feet of another person. And so that submission is framed as a legitimate context, but it does presume the context is in a marriage with another Christian, who again is not perfect, but is a, a, the wife is submitting to a husband who is seeking to love his wife in a um, cruciform pattern that follows the way of Jesus. So wives to your husbands, submit, submit to one another, wives to your husbands, and husbands love your wives. And that love is still understood to be tied to the verb to submit in 21, to come under each other's influence. And Paul does say that influence is going to look slightly different, generally speaking, in the marriage relationship. We'll talk about that next week and whether or not that's always the case or some of the case or are there normative roles for Christian marriages. But for now, um, outside of those particularities, Paul is saying, yes, there is absolutely something normative for all Christian marriages. And that is that you are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's normative. Paul is holding out this ideal. There's no doubt about it. He's holding out an ideal of how this husband and wife should see their role informed by the gospel and they're on the same page spiritually and they're uh, passionate about Jesus and they're eager to do this 
uh, with and for each other. And again, I'm not naive enough to <laughs> think that's the state of every or even most Christian marriages today. And so again, next week we'll talk about what happens if my spouse isn't a Christian, or if they're walking through a time of resistance or, or hesitancy in terms of living out their faith. Or uh, what if we're both Christians, but there's just been a pile of resentment that has been allowed to build. What do we do? How do you apply the, a verse like this in a context like that? We'll get to some of those real ground-level things, but I want us to hear submission through the Spirit, through Paul, as an opportunity to glorify God and to build a genuinely Christian marriage. And again, remember, submission in this context doesn't mean mindless obedience, self-degrading relinquishment of personal responsibility and agency because Paul is explicitly tying it to the submission that you give Jesus. Is the submission that Jesus asks of you mindless obedience? No. Is the submission that Jesus calls you to a self-degrading relinquishment of any kind of personal responsibility and agency? No. It's much more a, a cooperative, collaborative. Yes, there's authority structures in place, but even Jesus to his disciples said, you know, I'm now at the place with you where I no longer call you slaves because a slave doesn't know his master's business. I now call you a friend. So Jesus comes as close as you possibly can on a relational level to say, although there are lines of authority, from the inside, it's just going to feel like a great friendship. And that's what Christian marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be experienced on the inside as a both people vying for the authority to serve and bless one another. Both people adopting a posture and learning to live into the posture of voluntarily coming under the influence of the other person. Now we're going to come to the question of, again, whether those roles need to be fulfilled in a particular way. Does it vary by culture, or by time frame? Or is it normative? Should we talk about Christian marriages as if there is, uh, if there's a pretty precise way in which a husband and wife should act and engage within the home, within their marriage, within the world? We'll get to that next week. But for now, I want to be clear that this text is saying the spirit-filled marriages are that are given to the believers in Ephesus in the first century that we can learn from emphasize three things. Wives and husbands are called to submit to each other. Wives are called to submit as to the Lord, to their husbands. And husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And so the big picture is the purpose of our marriages is to be a sign. And Paul will talk about this in a few verses later. That points to the reality of Jesus' relationship with his church which means that you're not the point of your relationship. Like your relationship isn't about you. It's ultimately to serve a higher purpose. And when you begin to serve that higher purpose, you enter into greater joy and meaning and pleasure in your marriage. Now, I know we're not out of the woods yet. There's a lot to unpack, but at least let me give you a challenge for this week. For everybody who is married in the room, let me give you this challenge. I want you to bless your spouse. I want you to bless your spouse this week. We're going to use the covenants, bless acronym, and I want you to do this this week. This is your homework. You must submit to my authority as a pastor and bless your spouse. Does anyone remember what B is? What does B stand for? Begin with prayer. So begin by yourself and say, God, fill me with your spirit. God, show me what it means to submit to my spouse. 
and to love them. Right? We're going to begin with prayer. Pray together, but pray on your own first. What's L? Listen with care. At least ask them this question. Where have I failed to love you well? Don't get defensive on the answer. Don't ask that question until you, until you can simply receive the answer, as hard as it might be to hear, whether it's a 30-second or a 30-minute conversation. But go into it humbly, and the spouse needs to recognize the courage that takes, and so honor that trust, and don't just back the truck up and dump load, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. Where have I failed to love you well? And be willing to receive that and to pray about it and to repent of it. E, eat together, good. That might be a good context for the previous one. Go out to lunch, grab a coffee, sit down somewhere in privacy of your home, but carve out some time, break bread together and say, hey, like let's, as challenging as this may be, let's work through some of the stuff that Jeff told us to. S is, first one, serve and love, right? Maybe a question you could ask your spouse today is, what is one way that you would like me to support you this week? What's one way that you would like me to support you this week? And then as long as, again, th- there's nothing <laughs> sinful or wrong about th- their request, move heaven and earth to try and meet that. And then last S is what? What was that? We share your story. But that's land for marriages, so we'll do share intimacy. I don't want to say sex. It's a little bit too abrasive. But share intimacy. doesn't have to be sex. This is, this is the modified version for blessing your spouse. But it, physical touch, whether it's just holding hands, cuddling, creating a context where at some point in the week you are connecting physically is important. And there are different stages of the relationships. And, and so, again, this doesn't have to be some kind of arbitrary movement to... Um, towards sex, but to, to recognize that as we're trying to connect emotionally and spiritually with our spouses, um, physical touch and physical connection is a big facilitator of that. And so look for a way that you can, and I've just left it open, share intimacy, emphasize physical intimacy, closeness, and again, that might come through that question of, um, you know, what, what would be a way that I could physically bless you? this week. Uh, I think it's important in a marriage to be asking, how can I sexually and physically uh, be blessing my, se- my spouse, affirming them, uh, again, uh, using my body and recognition, again, of a New Testament passage, that my body is there to be a blessing and a conduit of blessing to my spouse. And to those who are unmarried in our church, uh, just let me really encourage you to be praying for maybe a future marriage on your horizon, uh, potentially a, f- a future spouse, um, but also be praying for the married couples in our church. Um, I've been married for 18 years. I've been a pastor for f- 15 of those. I've talked to a lot of married couples at different stages of marriage, and marriage is tough. And you could even argue it's even harder in today's day and age for all kinds of different reasons. There's so many more external and in some ways internal pressures on marriages. So marriages need your prayer. And it's easy to show up here on a Sunday morning and see couples together and to think, oh, everything's great. And for the most part, I think um, even, even Christian marriages that um, are, have a really solid foundation are often in this, um, this battle of like, wow, this is tough. This is tougher than we thought it would be. We thought by this point it would be easier. 
or we've found that learning to love each other well at this stage of life is incredibly difficult, and it really needs a different level of intentionality and attention than maybe we would have presumed uh, five years ago or ten years ago. And so as it comes to your mind, those of you who are unmarried, be praying for married couples in our church because there's a lot of work that has to be done within marriages in order to move towards Christ-likeness. But again, may we be encouraged by the fact that spirit-filled marriages can arise, and they can come from places where even the marriage is at a tremendous place of brokenness. God can redeem any situation. And spirit-filled marriages can occur when both spouses set their sights on being filled with the Spirit and submit to one another out of their reverence for Christ. Let's pray. God, for marriages in our church, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you lead us? Would you empower us? Would you fill us? Would you confront the scripts individually and together as couples that we um, have taken hold of our hearts and our imaginations and are holding us back and holding us down? May you overcome areas of woundedness or hurt, resentment, unforgiveness, hardness of heart, just maybe apathy, God, just a, a, a numbing busyness towards our spouse that we have had to move into that mode because of different life circumstances. God, would you overcome where there's lack of intimacy, lack of connection, God, as we take steps this week to bless our spouse? Would we not worry about whether or not our spouse is going to do it to their fullest extent? Would we just work on ourselves and say, God, how can I, just over the next seven days, bless my spouse in a way that's meaningful for them? God, we're doing that as an act of devotion to you, as a, as a prayer to say, God, we want something more for our marriages. And may those who are unmarried um, here take these lessons and realize these have great application to their current relationships and to future marriages. And may you just begin to build in their heart and character a posture of Christ-like um, willingness to come under the influence of other people and to not press into rights, but to lean more into responsibilities to care and love and serve. In Jesus' name, help us to cultivate godly, strong Christian marriages for your glory and our enjoyment and pleasure and the world's good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Please stand and sing with us.